0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. I'd like to say thank you to this episode's sponsor, Basic Rights. Basic Rights is founded in New York City and designed in London. What I like about Basic Rights is their clothing is very stylish and fits great, along with their focus on sustainability. They partnered with Trees for the Future in 2019 to offset our carbon footprint by planting a tree for every item sold. To this date, they have planted over 15,000 trees, and you can find them at us.basicrights.com. That's us.basicrights.com, and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by AJ Corey, founder of LayLamp, Lamp, a therapy lamp for migraine sufferers using a patented narrow band of green light discovered by Harvard neuroscientist Dr. Rami Burstein. Listen as we talk about AJ's upbringing, education, and his overall inspiration towards his entrepreneurial journey. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by A.J. Corey of LA LAMP. A.J., thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. Of course. So I wanna start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
1: Yeah, so I grew up uh, between Florida and North Carolina, actually. So um, I spent uh, my, my lower school, middle school years in, in Florida and um, uh, my high school and college years in North Carolina. And uh, though those are very different places, there's one commonality between the both of them, and that that was that I was a huge nerd. Um, So I flipped the program um, at the University of South Florida. was where my dad worked at the time um, when I was in middle school uh, and loved loved everything about uh, programming uh, since then. Uh, Designed my first website uh, when I was in Florida moved to North Carolina, um, you know, website came with me, uh, still spending most of my days in front of the computer, and uh, during the dot-com boom, actually, you know, created one of the most popular websites um, uh, in the world at the time, and,
0: and eventually sold it to one of two publicly traded companies trying to, trying to buy me. Wow, that, that's amazing. So how did you learn how to program if you didn't attend a university at that time for that?
1: I, uh, I, I want to say, uh, it's because, uh, you know, I was just really passionate about it and encouraged you to do it and, yeah. uh, all these other things, but, uh, there was a, and that, and that is true, but there was also a little bit of like, uh, you know, I wasn't the most popular guy in middle yeah. school. I had, uh, um, you know, I, I was, it was, it was a nerd, um, and, uh, you know, programming seemed easier than figuring out how to like be social. Uh, yeah have a large group of friends and so <laughs> uh, I just kind of fell into it and and I had a passion for it. Thankfully today I know how to be social. <laughs> and, uh, gotcha. <laughs> it was a forcing so, mechanism at the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I saw in 2002 you went on to study at Duke University. What did you study there?
1: Yeah, so I um, I started actually a couple different things so I, I was kind of fortunate in that. Um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do after college and that was create more websites, create startup companies. Mm. Um, And so I I had the freedom to kind of just study whatever really interested me. Um, And uh, psychology was something that really uh, captured me. Uh, And and it was related to, you know, the the businesses uh, that I had started before. Um, You know, the Mm -hmm. website I I had um, that eventually sold was literally like dancing cartoon characters and some of the dumbest things on earth. Um, And it it was, you know, one of the things that we had was the world's largest repository of chain letters. Um, Hmm. One of the things we had was the one of our most popular features actually was the online fortune cookie where you typed in random things about yourself and it uh, gave you, yeah, it 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 told you a, a story about yourself. and. Uh, and that got passed around to millions and millions of people. It was essentially BuzzFeed before BuzzFeed existed. Um, and, uh, th- you know, this idea of, like, what draws people to share something, what draws people to, like, you know, visit a site and and tell all their friends, um, that was really interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I had kind of stumbled upon it um, with, you know, the websites that I built. But I didn't really know why, um, you know, the psychology of why people were sharing it and and that, and why people do what they do ended up becoming something that um, I became really, really curious about. And, and I, you know, that was what my major was. Um, haven't, you know, done anything in formal psychology ever since. But that knowledge of um, being able to understand, you know, why people buy what they do, why people, um, you know, do what they do has, has stayed with me my entire
0: career and been incredibly beneficial. For sure. So with your time at Duke, were you a part of any athletics or clubs? During uh,
1: I was, uh, uh, just intramural, um, stuff, but, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the, you can, you can't take the the startup or the, the tech out of me. And so, um, I, uh, ended up, uh, becoming kind of the, the CTO of the student body, uh, my junior year and, and stayed okay. up, uh, my senior year. Um, we, we, we really kind of pushed the envelope, uh, sometimes a little too far. Um, yeah. it, you know, we, we're actually going to become the first school to put gps's on their buses um so that you know you knew exactly you know when to go to the bus stop and you know how far away the bus was and um we g- we got garmin to essentially do it for free um, as part of a pilot program so that they could roll it out to other universities um, and got everyone on board until Duke Transportation essentially shut it down at the last minute because they didn't want people knowing how late their buses were running. <laughs> Man, uh, so so it was it was a great experience because like we were like the technology is great, the application for students is great, and you know there it was like a no-brainer except we didn't you know factor in the political um, uh, implications of, of you know people who have jobs that. Uh, are going to have a new metric that they're going to be judged by that they perhaps don't want to be judged by. For sure. Um, and, uh, and so it was a, it was a great lesson, I think for our entire, you know, uh, group of uh, students that I built, uh, that organization around, um, that it, it doesn't always just come down to the technology. It, it also, the practical applications, ironically, the psychology behind, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, also matters, uh, whether something gets, you know, implemented or not.
0: So, that's wild you mentioned that. Uh, the high school I went to a few years back, we actually had a software we, where we could track the buses. And I'm just curious if like that has any influence of the work you have previously done. Or I don't know if your work directly led to that. Were you guys the first branch of GPS tracking buses? Do you know?
1: We were. We were. So Garmin uh, was literally developing an entire division around it. Wow. Um, and so this was back in, you know, 2004, so it was yeah. quite early, uh, you know, well before smartphones existed, this was all a web application, uh, mm-hmm. that would show, you know, bus times. And so, um, uh, it, it, it was, it was absolute, you know, we, I, I tried to build an organization as, you know, the CTO of, of Duke student body is, uh, the most forward thinking possible. Um, mm-hmm. and so we were truly at the forefront of this I don't know if it directly led to your high school's uh, PBS, but it it definitely was, you know, this was Garmin's first, uh, they they were building an entire division around it. They built an entire division around it. They uh, ostensibly went to another school with the entire solution that we had built uh, (laughs) after we pulled out.
0: Gotcha. So I saw in 2009, you went on to Harvard for your MBA. What was your experience like at Harvard during that time?
1: Yeah, it was, it, it was an incredibly amazing experience, but mm-hmm. I came in you know, as someone who had started a website with dancing cartoon characters, and that was my success, uh, at least before college, and then you know, um, after college, still being kind of a, a startup-y guy, I came in with a, kind of a chip on my shoulder, um, or, or really, I, f- I felt like I had something to prove because I, I was like the admissions mistake. <laughs> um and so uh I did some incredibly stupid things, uh like running for my uh section's uh presidency, which I won, um, which is a complete sucker's job. I mean, I, I <laughs> love doing it. I love my section, I love the people, but it is a lot of work. Yeah. Um and I and I just took on a lot of different things to kind of prove that I belonged uh at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um and it was only years after that I realized that I, I, I had always belonged. But I, I think I you know, I, I I think I spent too much time while I was there trying to prove to really myself um, that I that I belonged, um, and uh, it, it held me back from doing some things that I think you know just just even taking more advantage of of the situation of being there. But that all being said, it was an amazing experience for me and the people I met of you know some of the most important people in my life.
0: Yeah. So some of the other guests I've had on, they have stated that their MBA program offered. An amazing chance at an entrepreneurship project i was wondering with harvard with your time there did you ever take part in any notable entrepreneurship projects during your time
1: yeah yeah i did um and uh you know i i that was a main focus while i was there because again you know been extremely lucky since uh, essentially middle school known yeah. what i've wanted to do with my life um and so i i did uh i i you know i took place at took part in the harvard business school contest. Uh, actually, on the on the nonprofit side, so we create a FOPSY, which apparently is not a, a term that people use anymore. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, I think. <laughs> but uh, it stands for for-profit social enterprise, um, mm. and uh, so so not nonprofit, but uh, social impact-driven, uh, but also can be profitable, which. Um, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people still feel is you know the proper way. If you really want to impact someone, you you make it a profitable business because it you know you just able to attract investors and talent better that way. Yeah. Um, so we uh, uh, teamed up with a couple people who had spent a lot of time in, um, in Tanzania um, and essentially uh, uh, built this kind of all star team of uh, a couple MDS, a couple people who spent a lot of time in Tanzania, and myself, who was kind of the tech person uh, on the mm-hmm. team. Uh, And we essentially created an organization um, that allowed um, people in Tanzania to uh, sell water using their smartphones. So uh, as as you may know, access to water is one of the biggest issues uh, in Dar es Salaam and uh, and, and in other parts of Tanzania. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's much better now, but back then uh, in 2010, it was one of the main things holding back uh, the population. Uh, from, mm. from you know, just living a, a good life. Um, and uh, there are plenty, tons of uh, micro entrepreneurs uh, who wanted to sell water. The problem is that um, uh, the cash system there didn't allow for it to like, proliferate, these, these micro entrepreneurs uh, able to proliferate and um, uh, sell water on the scale that's necessary to really reach all of the population. So we mm. came up with uh, uh, essentially a, a mobile platform Uh, that allowed uh, these sellers to not only get financing so they could, um, you know, get the water up front. uh, And it's more than just obviously the water is not what's expensive. It's the transportation to the villages and all that kind of stuff. So to finance their transportation, their um, apparatuses for selling the water uh, and a way to accept payments uh, from people buying it. Uh, in a very seamless way that was completely mobile-focused. It was very, uh, you know, again, smartphones had only been around for a couple of years at this point. Um, it was very cutting-edge, and it made a huge impact over there in the distribution of water. So we actually won the Harvard um, Business Plan Contest. We uh, wow. beat uh, uh, a, a startup uh, that uh, now a lot of people know about called Birchbox. Haley was there yeah. uh, pitching it, and I remember it and she was like, and it was so good, and I was like, this is a great idea. Um, and we ended up beating her and obviously she had <laughs> the last laugh uh, <laughs> uh, and, and just rightfully so because she's just a phenomenal entrepreneur and it was a phenomenal company. But yeah, we ended up winning the Harvard Business, business Plan Contest um, with that, with that um, Tanzanian um, micro uh, payment uh, company. Um, and, uh, and actually they wrote a case about it um, that is used for first year accounting students now every
0: uh, year. Awesome. So it was it's pretty cool. Yeah. So prior to, or prior to Ale, what kind of jobs were you working following college at this time? We talked about other ventures that you have founded, but were, were there some corporate jobs as well? Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, well, sort of. Uh, so when I was about to graduate, I was actually going to start a men's clothing company. Um, very similar to Stitch Fix, but for the male side. Uh, and Katrina yes. is, was actually, uh, you know, a friend, and we were, we were both on a trip to Africa talking about it. Um, and as, a, and a, as she was talking about, you know, what she wanted to do with Stitch Fix or what became Stitch Fix, um, I was just like, wow, like, she knows a lot more about <laughs> the fashion industry than I do. <laughs> I don't know if I should be doing this. And I went and talked to one of my uh, entrepreneurship professors uh, and he he took one look at the way I dressed, and he was like, "You should not be, <laughs> you should not be doing a fashion startup." Um, and, and he was absolutely right. I mean, you are when you start a company in an area, you are married to that um, mm-hmm. for a long time, um, and you are day in day out doing that. And I had no passion for fashion. Um, I, the reason I wanted to start it was because I didn't have a passion for fashion. I wanted to, uh, you know, create a create something. Um, you know, uh, uh, similar to Trump, what, what is now Trump box, um, where you really help men dress. But to, to help men, you know, dress better, uh, you need to know something about fashion. And I didn't. So he gave me one of the best suggestions I've, I've ever gotten in my life or some of the best advice I've ever gotten. Go find an entrepreneur that you really, really respect. Go learn from them uh, and then start a company when, you know, you have an idea that you want to be married to. Uh, mm-hmm. And so... Out of pure luck and through the HBS network, I ended up uh, finding Mark Laurie, uh, who at the time uh, had uh, started a, a company called Diapers.com. The company is mm. called Quidzy, but the, the, their most famous site was Diapers.com. Um, he's one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs uh, I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, people talk about Jeff Bezos being the you know, uh, pinnacle of e-commerce. I think it, it, there's two people in that category. It's, it's Mark Laurie and, and, and Jeff Bezos. Um, obviously Mark has had quite a lot of success as well. He ended up selling, uh, the parent company, diapers.com to Amazon for 600 million and then sold jet.com for, to Walmart for three and a half billion. Um, and so they, uh, you know, they brought me in and I was very upfront that I'm an entrepreneur and they're like, that's perfect. You know, we want to start a pharmacy, you know, both we nor Amazon have ever started a pharmacy before. So we want an entrepreneur to do this. Um. And so we'll make you a deal. You come in, start the pharmacy as almost a startup within the company, and we'll mentor you for two years, then we'll all go off and start our own companies in two years. Um, and uh, it was the best deal I've ever taken. Got to learn directly from Mark and uh, Vinny, and uh, they are just, they're just—they're brilliant people. And, and you can boil down um, a lot of what, how they've been so successful to one simple fact that you, you need to think long-term. You need to always think about the customer um, For sure. so they, you know, Amazon acquired Quidzy and diapers.com because they were beating them at selling diapers, uh, which is otherwise a commodity. And our moms didn't go anywhere because, uh, even when Amazon sold diapers cheaper than us, because they knew that the customer experience when they bought on diapers.com was, uh, above and beyond, you know, if, mm-hmm. if, if that actually BS screwed up the delivery, we would literally hop in a car and drive the diapers to them. And so they knew it, when they bought from us, they would have a... You know the best experience, and if you're a busy mom, that's really incredibly important. Um, and uh, so, you know, customers end up um, sticking with you longer, and and very importantly, they also do your marketing for you. Um, and that is their you know entire structure has never been more relevant than it is today, where yeah. our channels are incredibly crowded, um, and you know the the Bears entry on Facebook and AdWords and even Instagram ads are, are pretty low at this point. So there's a lot uh, more competition. And so mm-hmm. CPAs continue to go up as more people jump in. But the, the, the kind of secret sauce that I feel like still people truly really don't understand that Mark and, and Vinny really figured out is that if you have the best possible experience for your customers, they're gonna do your marketing for you. And that yeah, CPA yeah. is zero. Uh, and that will blend down every other ad channel that you have. Um, and so everything that I've done since with Urban Stems, with The um, has really been built on this premise that if you create the best possible experience for your customers, it is a little bit more expensive upfront, but uh, they they churn a lot less and they do your uh, you know marketing for you. And so the the bigger the wedge you drive between your CPA and the lifetime value of that customer, mm. the more profitable you are um, and the mm. more successful in an e-commerce business you have. Um, and those two things don't always. The reason why I think a lot of people don't realize this still today is because those two things are long trail indicators. Like measuring lifetime value takes years. COA is very simple to measure on a Facebook conversion, but very hard to measure uh, when you blend in word of mouth. Um, mm. And so, but we, I have seen firsthand how much investing in the best possible customer experience pushes down your COA, pushes up your lifetime value. Um, yeah, and so I, had, you know, I had the faith to be able to always do that upfront, even if those metrics don't show up for a couple of years.
0: Mm. So I'm really fascinated with Urban Stems. So in 2013, you founded Urban Stems, flower delivery service. What made you enter this industry specifically after all of this experience in e-commerce, which has definitely benefited this side?
1: Yeah, so uh, I um, uh, was, when I was at Quidzy, I was living in New York and I was dating uh, someone at the time uh, who was a a doctor in Philadelphia. And Mm -hmm. so both of us were incredibly busy uh, and in this three-year long-distance relationship. Uh, So as you can imagine, I sent a lot of flowers uh, (laughs) when I couldn't be there. And I just had bad experience after bad experience. Uh, and I thought I was just getting super unlucky. And I finally crescendoed on her birthday, I sent her a bouquet of Surpriser. Um, and it, uh, by like 5 p.m., it still wasn't there. And I called uh, the company at the time, which I sent it, which was FTD, and they said, oh, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, by you know, 7 p.m., it still wasn't there. I had held off on calling because uh, I wanted the flowers to Surpriser. Um, and I called FTD, and they're like, no, we promised it's coming. By finally eleven o'clock, I gave up and called to a a very angry girlfriend, um, who I had avoided talking to the entire day because I thought flowers were going to be there to surprise her, uh, and which, to be fair, is completely my fault. Uh, But after that, I was like, you know what? There's uh, there's something wrong with this industry. I can't be this unlucky. Um, And you know, I looked into it and did some research and realized that it was a very common experience. Uh, In fact. Online floor delivery is dead last in customer satisfaction out of all categories of e-commerce. And mm. so this contrast, this juxtaposition of being at Quidzy where we were literally beating Amazon because uh, and acquired by Amazon because we had the best possible experience for our customers. Um, and then this industry that just got away with having the worst possible experiences for our customers um, was too strong for me not to want to, to jump in and do something about it. Um, yeah. And so we came in and essentially revamped revamp the entire way the floral industry is done uh you know fgd 100 flower is completely based on uh, a wire system that they take your order and then they send it to a florist to actually fulfill we're fully vertically integrated we own every part of the process including when you order in dc and, and in new york it's biked to you in an hour and those couriers are our employees who have benefits and you know they're not even contractors they're they're full-on employees
0: so do you guys grow your plants or is this outsourced? Cause you said you're doing hundred percent in house pretty much for the most part for the yeah, flowers. So you, we've,
1: we've invested in farms. We've uh, okay. we dictate what's being uh, grown at the farm so that there's less waste. Um, the bouquets are actually being put together in a lot of instances at the farm level. So yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's truly fully integrated.
0: So same day delivery, NYC and DC. What does the shipping process look like when you go nationwide then? How do you preserve the flowers?
1: Yeah, so we we just invested in, in technology to have the best possible customer experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're shipping from one of eight warehouses uh, nationwide so that it's not going more than a couple hundred miles to get to you. Okay. Um, and the box, the, the flowers, how quickly they go from... Um, being cut off the stem to our warehouse then to you is is greatly reduced from the typical supply chain mm. um, so you know not only is it out for delivery when it's when it leaves our warehouse it's getting to you in under a day uh so it's free overnight shipping for everyone um but it's also uh you know it, it, it's been at our warehouse generally for only a day or two so okay. typically when you're picking up flowers from a florist it's been off the stem for a week and a half to two weeks um, when you're ordering from us, even with nationwide delivery, uh, it's been off the stem for only a couple of days. So you're getting the most of the life of the flower with the consumer, which again, best customer experience, going to win, always win at the end of the day.
0: For sure. So moving on to 2019, we hop into LA Lamp. The idea was first evolved with Dr. Burstein. I was wondering how was the idea presented to you at this time? Yeah.
1: Uh, so I, um, had a, a little bit of a, uh, kind of insight into this because my dad is uh, also one of the foremost um, uh, uh, migraine specialists in the country as well. Mm. Um, and, and he's been friends with Dr. Burstein for a long time. And so when we're up in Cambridge one day, um, Dr. Burstein said, hey, come to my lab. I just want to show you something that um, uh, really has you know, astounded all of us. Um, and we're not quite sure what to do with it. Um, and that was, you know, and I walked into essentially a green room and I was like, what what am I looking at? Uh, but you know, as as he, as we stood there for a while, I did, I did start to feel more calm. Um, and then obviously he explained, you know, the research he did starting with blind patients and, uh, trying to understand why blind patients feel worse in light. You know, everyone knows that migraine patients feel worse when they look at light. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, he, he, as he tried to understand it, he brought in blind patients who, you know, don't, um, who can't tell that a light is being shown on them, but their headache is getting worse. Uh, and, uh, so clearly there's some, you know, physiological mechanism from your eyes to your, uh, brain that affect disproportionately affect people with migraines. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they studied it more and more, he, he found this really surprising conclusion that, it's not all light, it's, it's uh, you know, they're different colors of light do different things to your brain, uh, to everyone's brain, not just people with migraines, but especially people with migraines. And yeah. he, he found that, you know, it, you know, this pretty incredible finding that blind migraineurs when shown green light, uh, or this is a very narrow band of green light, have no idea what color light or even that light is being shown on them, but their headache gets better. Um, and so that was kind of the jumping off point to a lot of research, which, you know, culminated in the LA lamp.
0: Wow. That's so fascinating. So when you walked in that room, there was no like prototype of a lamp. It was just green, right? W- what did the light look like? Was it like surrounding the room?
1: Uh, so they had, so essentially Dr. Burstein to, you know, it's, it's a very, it's 10 nanometers of lights. So it's a very specific, yeah. um, uh, uh, spectrum of light, and there was, no commercial device, there was no commercial device at the time that could produce that. Um, and so the way he had produced it for his studies was he used a medical device, a very precise uh, ophthalmology device um, mm-hmm. that cost $50,000. It's called a color dome um, to produce this light both in the room and in this like dome that you stick your head in. Um, and so it's, it's a medical device that's used for a lot of different things um, and obviously very, very expensive um, and so that's, that's how he had used it. And that was essentially the question to, to us was, you know, his, his li- lifetime of work has been making people's lives better. who have migraines it's 40 yeah, million yeah. people. It's just an incredible disease. Um, it affects about 10% of our population worldwide, including here in the U S and for those 10% of people, their day just ends when they get a migraine and there's no cure. Um, and the, the fact that this exist you know people like my dad and, and dr burstein are, are true you know saints i think in that they have dedicated their entire careers to trying to help these people um and so when uh you know dr burstein figured out that this spectrum of light could really help people his entire goal and the entire reason he brought me in was how do we how do we bring this to as many people as possible how do mm. we how do we get this in the hands of as many people as possible because the current device i have is fifty thousand dollars that's not gonna work Yeah, Um, and so we engaged with a a former, you know, the, 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 the scientists who actually built the lights on the international space station, um, went out and and figured out how to manufacture this in a, in a consumer device that, you know, that is today, the LA lamp $150 that's accessible to everyone.
0: Wow. So is there such thing as too much exposure to the lamp? Like, could it be harmful to be too close for an extended period?
1: No, I mean, you're exposed, you, I'm assuming where you're sitting right now, you are being exposed to that wavelength.
0: Yeah, uh, for the sure. LA
1: wavelength right now. It's just that you're also being exposed to all the other wavelengths of light. Yeah. Um, and so there is, uh, you know, there, there, you're, you're being exposed to it all day. So, it, you know, there is no harm uh, in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It will send smaller electrical signals to your brain, which we now know is how it works. Uh, which will calm you down. Um, so I, I guess if you have to be doing something really intense, maybe it's not great to be just in uh, the LA wavelength of light. But no, it's it's just a yeah. part of the visible spectrum, so it's not it's not doing
0: any harm. So to the consumers out there, would you recommend all surrounding lights to be off and just the LA lamp to be on, or how does that look? Yes, and and more than a recommendation, you you, you have to be uh,
1: you have to have all other lights. Off. Okay. Um, because anytime you're exposing, um, to, uh, you know, any of the, especially red and blue, other spectrums of light, you're activating other parts of your brain that increase the electrical activity. Uh, yeah. and so that offsets the lower signals that from the, uh, from the green, uh, specific spectrum of green. Um, so, so, you know, one of the, one of the things that we often get asked is, you know, can I use my laptop or watch TV while I have the light on? And the unfortunate answer is no, because I mean, it's still better than being in normal light. But um, if, you tr- if you have a migraine and you truly want the headache to go down, you need to truly just isolate to just this spectrum. Uh, and that's yeah. when the real magic happens.
0: Once the lamp was developed at this time, what were your main forms of advertising? You said Dr. Bernstein kind of brought you on to send it out to everyone you can. So what did that look like?
1: Yeah, so we, um, you know, we the, the company was started with its you know two founders of Urban Stems uh, and one of uh, the people on the founding team of Hubble Contacts, and so we, between the three okay. of us, um, we've had a lot of experience with direct consumer marketing, uh, and so our goal, part of the reason why Dr. Burstein wanted to work with us is we knew, you know, we know how to reach consumers. We've we've done it before. We know the playbook, um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of it is replicable. Um, uh, and so we, you know, we have done that and it's been, you know, quite successful. I think one thing, though, that we have learned is uh, this device uh, or this, you know, Allay um, is, is very different than um, uh, your typical um, uh, direct-to-consumer brand where what, what it is is known. So yeah. in the case of flowers or contact lenses, People are already searching for that, so you just have to be the best at being in, getting in front of the consumer when they're searching mm-hmm. for it. No one is searching for narrowband green light because no one really knows about it yet. Yeah. Um, that's obviously changed in the past couple of months, but you know, when we launched, no one knew anything about um, uh, narrowband green light, and so we had to we had to do education plus selling uh, instead mm-hmm. of just selling. And so that was a bit of a learning curve for us. Um, in that, you know, especially in the field of migraines, there's just so much snake oil out there. So many things that are sold that claim to help with migraines that really have no research behind them. And we're rolling in with a very well-researched, you know, multiple studies at Harvard Medical School, uh, multiple papers published on this. Um, and, uh, you know, we're rolling in. We, we kind of thought like, oh, we have, you know, this is obviously legitimate. Uh, we have everything behind us. But there is still, you know, when there is so much noise out there as a, a consumer, especially a migraine, as someone who has a migraine who is advertised a lot of different things, um, you're understandably skeptical about, um, you know, everything you see. Yeah. So the education piece plus the selling uh, took a took a different strategy um, uh, than we had initially anticipated. Um, and it, it really hinged on us uh, uh, you know, ingraining the the, the 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 migraine influencers, the people who write about migraines every day, uh, who talk about it every day, really getting them to try the device and fall in love with it, um, yeah. and, uh, uh, and 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 talk about it, um, which help you know bring overall general knowledge to it.
0: Uh, this idea that a wavelength of light can can help reduce your headache. Mm. So is Alley Lamp? sold a hundred percent through e-commerce at this time
1: yes yeah
0: with no plans on being in retail uh we think it's the easiest way for us to reach
1: the most amount of people possible and and obviously it's our roots, so we're a little biased Uh um, yeah yeah but but you know
0: we we believe we can reach virtually everyone without ever having to go to a store for sure so i wrap up each episode with this if you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur maybe something you've learned or regret what would that be
1: uh i feel like i could we could spend the entire podcast talking about this <laughs> the number sure. of lessons that i have learned over the years uh, the number of mistakes i've made and and, and lessons i've learned are, are quite big um, i'll <laughs> i'll start with one that just uh, or end the you know with one that i i think it took me the longest to learn um mm-hmm. which is you need to take care of yourself first um there is a a huge, you know, culture in the startup world built around hustle and, you know, sacrifice yourself and sacrifice your happiness um, for the company, um, which is almost taken as fact these days by, I think, young entrepreneurs and certainly by me when you know I started my companies um, yeah. and, it, and it could not be more wrong. Um so, uh, you know, it, it is easy and it's, it's easy to see why we fall into it. You know, if we when we take external money, when we have a team of people whose jobs rely on our decisions, um, you know, we tend to just over overwork and sacrifice everything in our personal lives um, to 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 make the company successful or at least doing what we think is making the company successful. But um, what you're actually doing is just making, you know, wearing yourself down and making worse decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. And every decision we make as an entrepreneur is is usually a fairly big one and fairly important one. Um, And if you are worn down and, you know, operating at 80%, you are not going to be successful. Um, I think the, the way to be most successful is to have, you know, fill up your own cup first. Um, Especially entrepreneurs are doing it, you know, uh, are are doing it because they're incredibly talented and, um, you know, can think of things that others can't. Uh, You can't do that if you're just constantly struggling to, you know,
0: keep your head above water. For sure. Well, AJ, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Lamp at com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.